Uh, good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, my name is Alexander Nehemas. I chair the Council of Humanities, and on, on behalf of the Council, I'm absolutely delighted to welcome you to this afternoon with Maurice Sendak, who in turn has delighted, dazzled, and uh, sometimes terrified many of us over many, many years. Let me say a few words about the Belknap program first. Uh, it was created to commemorate Chauncey Belknap of the Princeton class of 1912. Chauncey Belknap was orphaned at the age of three, but then graduated from Princeton and went on to the Harvard Law School, after which he was a clerk for Justice uh, Oliver Wendell Holmes. During World War I, he worked with both Generals Pershing and uh, Marshall, helping Ah, how appropriate. <laughs> Helping supervise uh, American troop movements in France. He was a lawyer for more than 60 years uh, and a partner in the firm of Patterson, Belknap, Webb, and Tyler until his death at the age of 92. And he had very broad interests in the arts and the humanities, which make it a perfect tribute to him to create this program, which brings uh, artists of such distinction to the university. The, lists, the list of the people we have invited grows every year, like a famous catalog associated with one of Mr. Sendak's favorite operas. Uh, and every year, when I stand up here, this is my seventh, I promise I will not repeat the list again next year because it will be too long. I have always broken that promise, and I will break it again now. Uh, so for the last time, I promise, here is the list, the list I have made myself. Uh, we have heard so far Eudora Welty, Isaac Bashevis Singer, Nadine Gordimer, Roy Lichtenstein, Athol Fugard, Doris Lessing, John Updike, Edward Albee, Czeslav Miwosh, Carlos Fuentes, Frank Stella, Robertson Davies, Peter Sellers, Arthur Miller, Merce Cunningham, and Adrian Rich. We are very grateful to the Belknap family, many of whom are here today. In fact, they are children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren of Chauncey Belknap for creating this extraordinary opportunity to bring outstanding men and women of letters and the arts to Princeton. The span of generations I just mentioned is, of course, particularly appropriate to Maurice Sendak. Every age, so to speak, knows him. Those here who are not old enough to have read his books as children have discovered them as parents or even some as grandparents and through them relived again. And I might add on behalf of many of us who had to contend with our child saying, oh, please, just one more time, just one more time, and then I'll go to bed. We have relived again and again and again many moments of our own childhood. Murray Sendak was born in Brooklyn of Polish immigrant parents, and it is said generally that he was not very fond of school of sports, or sports, but he loved, guess what, bedtime stories. Stories told him by his father, whom he has described as a remarkable storyteller, um, who actually, because of his remarkable abilities, also is responsible for having turned him into an insomniac, and also terrorizing as well. In addition, as he put it, he didn't edit. <laughs> he, 
his very first book, I believe, was given him by his sister, and it was Mark Twain's The Prince and the Pauper, and he has described holding that object and trying to chew it and eat it with pleasure and delight in the most wonderful terms. I understand he still owns it today. He still has it with him. And soon thereafter, fell in love with uh, Robert Louis Stevenson's A Child's um, Garden of Verses, which is the first book he includes in his own Western canon, Junior. Uh, later on, he uh, uh, fell in love with the adventure stories of Herm- Herman Melville, I think maybe Typey may have been the first one, and Bret Hart, uh, the uh, um, uh, la- uh, roaring, roaring like the... Uh, uh, the Luck of Roaring Camp. Uh, books I, at the time, was later, actually, was reading in the Greek version of Classics Illustrated in Athens. It uh, shows you the difference in levels here. Uh, he actually began uh, his career as an illustrator in high school itself, in high school, which he dreaded, as he told us today. Uh, he drew pictures of Mutt and Jeff into various comic books uh, instead of paying attention to his uh, lessons. And then he uh, went to the Art uh, Students League, but not to learn how to paint or draw, mostly so he could get into Manhattan and eat good food, he said. Uh, At age 19, in 1947, he co-authored his first book, uh, Atomics for the Millions. In high school, he also discovered William Blake. Songs of Innocence and Experience, he has said, belong with Mozart and Shakespeare, my teachers and gods and best consolations for everything. This is a man of many parts. He is at home with words as he is with images. He has written and illustrated at least 19 books of his own, including, of course, the classic trilogy, Where the Wild Things Are, The Night Kitchen, In the Night Kitchen, and Outside Over There. He has also illustrated more than 60 books by other authors, including, of course, Blake and Melville. Uh, The total is somewhere around 100 Sendak books are now circulating in the universe. not to mention, of course, the wooden toys he has designed along with his brother. But it's not just pictures and words that attract his attention. Action and music also fascinate him. He has written lyrics for an animated TV film, uh, and he knows a lot about TV. I am very, very admiring of that. He has written a libretto for an opera based on where the wild things are, and has designed sets and costumes for various operas, including works by Mozart, uh, uh, Janacek, and Prokofiev. Last night, in fact, uh, the New York City Opera had a revival of Love for Three Oranges, for which Maurice Sendek has designed the sets and costumes, and maybe a bit tired after that three-day grueling uh, rehearsal schedule. He's received a number of awards. I will not go through them except to mention the National Medal for the, of the Arts given him by President Clinton in 97 and the Hans Christian Andersen International Medal for the whole body of his work. In one of the books Maurice Sendak produced with Ruth Krauss, one of his favorite collaborators, A Hole is to Dig, a first book of first definitions, we are told that hands are to make things, Hands are to eat with, and hands are to hold. This afternoon, hands are also to clap, to applaud an artist who has created literary words of his own, who has given us new images for imagining the worlds of others, and who has enabled us, if you will allow me one child storybook paradox, to listen 
to some of the greatest music in the world with new eyes. You are in for a real treat. Please join me in welcoming Maurice Sendak to Princeton. This is mostly for show. Uh, I had a very bad accident, but I am improving, but it's so impressive to walk around with a cane. And in New York, when you leave a rehearsal late at night, it's necessary to walk around with a cane. Uh, I might as well talk about that a little bit, since that's been on my mind. We were in rehearsal for two weeks, but of that two weeks, basically only three stage rehearsals of the Prokofiev opera, Love for Three Oranges, which is a very short bit for a major, colossal, uproarious, and quite incomprehensible opera. Um, he wrote it when he was in his 20s, perhaps 25, and it was commissioned by the Chicago Lyric Opera back in the early 20s, and they wanted a classy foreign composer, hardly an American would do, and they wanted a Russian composer, but they wanted the French language. So they commissioned Prokofiev, who was very young, never at an opera, and he was so amused by the commission that he wrote a thumb-nosing opera at opera. Uh, I wonder what they thought back then in Chicago when it was premiered. I've never read a review or how it was received, but watching last night's audience, um, I'll be curious about the review, because it was a first-night audience meeting they don't know whether to like it or not because they haven't read the review yet. <laughs> uh, so there's a lot of sitting on hands and nervousness because it's a vulgar opera. It is a broad farce. There is nudity on the stage, very common jokes. Um, this is not normally expected in the opera world. Uh, it'll be curious. By the second act, they started laughing nervously. And by the end, they were laughing, which is what they should have been done at the beginning. Um, the work began years ago. It was produced in Glyndebourne, England, the wonderful opera house in Sussex. And there you had a full month where you lived. It's a huge, beautiful mansion. It goes back to like the 15th century, and the artists live in the house. So you rehearse every day, and the orchestra is there, and the conductor is there, and the prop builder, and the backstage people. We build the sets there, we rehearse there, we eat together, we chase the sheep around the lawn, we feed the birds. It's sort of a heavenly place. So Oranges had much more preparation than this production did, but um, I think it'll be all right. I'm very happy with it. Uh, on coming into the Opera House, I heard some rather news that was a little bit upsetting. There were two women. I'm never recognizable anywhere, which is a great blessing. I look like everybody looks in Brooklyn. Um, and there were these two ladies behind me, and as they came in, one said, Oh, my God, you know, this is by that illustrator, and blah, blah, blah. And the other one said, Yes, isn't it a shame he passed away? Um... Now, this comes on two other things that have happened. One, somebody called me that a picture of mine, a bad one, was being sold on the Internet, and it said, get it now, there ain't no more coming. The guys croaked. 
That on top of a phone call from the New York Times, and I'm going to embarrass him because he deserves it. It was Christopher Lehman Haupt, who's now been kicked upstairs to uh, the obituary call, celebrity obit. And he called to speak to someone in my house to find out how it happened. (laughs) I was sitting there by the phone. It was just after I had injured my leg. I wasn't going anywhere. Uh, In fact, I was watching Oz on (laughs) HBO. And I always listen to the phone message before I pick up. And there was Christopher. I knew him many, many years ago. We both went to the same therapist in Riverdale, New York. Um, And I heard his voice. And of course, I could not resist. I picked up the phone and brought to his attention that I was living. I thought he was going to pass on. Um, He said he got the news from a certain person whom I will not name, who was in the children's book field. And she was certain... And I said, oh, of course she's certain. We both hated each other for 30 years. I've been wishing each other dead, and she couldn't resist anymore, so she called you. Uh, now, based on that, I can't remember the famous Mark Twain, where reports of my death, whatever. Um, it's given me a new lease on life to be here. <laughs> and you are, I am visibly alive. I need that reassurance. Now, I am also... Uh, I've been working on the opera stage for good since 1980. That came about simply because working on books is a colossal kind of isolation. It does not involve anybody but your editor, which is mostly very poor company. Um, There's no one to collaborate with, no one to talk to. It's wonderful. I feel very lucky. There's no other life I could have had. There was nothing else I could ever have done. So I'm not complaining, except I did need some socializing. And someone called and said, uh, in fact, it was Frank Corsaro, who was just the major, in my opinion, opera director in America. He's superb. And he had seen my illustrations to Grimm, and he was very moved by them. He wondered if I would like to work on an opera with him, and the opera he chose was The Magic Flute, which was my opera. It was, even then, the most powerful work of art that... Well, that's how I feel about it. And I told Frank, I knew nothing about the stage. I knew nothing about costuming. I knew nothing about anything to do with stage design, which pleased him. He wanted somebody who was gifted but utterly stupid about the facts of the stage so that he could handle me. And, of course, he did. I've been very lucky. You heard that I had very bad experience at school as a child and refused to go to college and simply out of fear and the anxiety and illness that I went through from being a child in school. Uh, So I learned all my crafts in publishing and on the stage from people in the business. Uh, For me, it was the greatest way to learn because I loved these people. They were the mentors that I wish existed now for young people. I don't know that they're out there. I am, and I have people I work with. Um, So Frank taught me everything. And for the 10 years, I designed about a dozen operas. I'm now putting that aside. I'm going back to the solitude of the the book world, partly because um, opera has become a kind of bottom-line industry in America, like so many industries have become. It's repertory. It's quick. 
It's selling tickets, and it's not as inventive as it used to be, and I can't move that fast anymore. Nor do I wish to live in cities for a month or however long to produce something. So I am producing, however, one more operatic piece. Um, I also have a children's theater, and we're doing an opera. Um, some of you may have heard of it. It's called Brunderbar. It is an opera by a composer named Hans Kraza. The story of this is very, very interesting. It's an opera that was written in Theresienstadt, which was a concentration camp outside of Prague. And Hitler set this camp up as a fake camp. There is even a film of how happy the inmates of the camp are. So when the Red Cross came and diplomats, because the stories coming out of Europe were just not believable, they were invited to Theresienstadt, and you could see happy people. Jews playing volleyball. I'm a Jew, and I know that's not in us to play volleyball. <laughs> so anyone who would believe they were playing volleyball, how easily fooled they were. And then there were gay people chattering away and happy as a lark. And there were political prisoners who were just at home and at ease. Apparently it worked. Uh, it's a notorious film. You have to have a strong stomach to watch it. Now, Hans Krauser was this young composer, and he was asked to compose an opera for children, Jewish children, in an orphanage inside Prague. It was a contest. He won. <clears throat> the opera he produced is Brunderbar. Now, it was sung by the children in the orphanage, so, of course, there was no depending on them having great voices. So it's more like a zingspiel, half-spoken, half-sung. It is gorgeous. It is 45 minutes in length. It was performed 50 times at Theresienstadt. People came and saw it, applauded, loved it, went back to their countries. Children were shipped off to Auschwitz. So everybody, including Kraser and Hofmeister, the librettist, everybody involved in the production was murdered. The score somehow survived the war. It is now, the original score is in Prague in the archive, and I have, after much effort, gotten the rights to do the production. Uh, it is in Czech. Uh, which is the most beautiful language in the world. When it's in English, it sounds idiotic. So I got a wonderful artist and great friend, Tony Kushner, to work on the libretto, and he's written something glorious. <clears throat> from that, we are developing or extrapolating from the libretto to do a picture book, which will pay for the production. It's very hard to get money for a children's piece. Uh, but Brunderbar is on track now. I'm doing the book at this very moment, and we are planning for the production in Chicago Opera in 2001, we hope. Um, one little anecdote to that, and then I'm going to open the floor up to you people. Um, I also designed a little dance piece with Palabolus. They had some grant money. Excuse me. They came to us, me and Arthur Yorigs, my partner, and said, could we work with them? Of course, we wanted to because a half-hour dance piece with Brunderbar would make an evening's entertainment. And we convinced them that instead of doing the, their, the things they do so well, which is playing with human bodies and heads coming out of every odd place you can imagine, that we do a rather dark piece. Uh, we found some more music that Kraza had written. He 
died when he was on, in his early 30s, so there was a quartet and a trio, some few songs. We used the music for the Brundebar, for the Palabolas piece, and, um, <clears throat> which is called A Selection, which will now open the evening. It's very dark. Um, when it played at the Joyce Theater, people see my name, so the flogged with children. There's no way of saying, maybe you should not bring your kid to this. But since I'm against ever saying that, um, except for some unimaginable things I won't mention, most things I can't imagine why you shouldn't take your child to, if it's good. Now, the children in the audience, I watched them. It was very quiet. Um, stark things were going on stage to music that no one's, hardly anyone has ever heard. It was a big, big, big success. We were very lucky. And that will then be the whole program uh, for that evening. At this event, at the Joyce, when a selection was performed, uh, after the, was over, we were all standing in the aisle, some woman came up to me, about my age, and embraced me, and a very heavy accent asked if I was who I was, and I said I was. And she said, is it true you are doing Brundabar? I said, yes. And then she really burst into tears and had to be seated. And she told me that she had been in the original production at Theresienstadt, that she had played the part of the cat. And she wanted to meet me, and she invited me to her house to show me the star that she had to wear and the fake passport what few things what she called her mommy had saved from the camp. And she told me that only 10 girls had survived from the thousands and thousands of children that had been there. They were all connected on the Internet. They all knew each other. And, of course, they've known each other for over 60 years at this point. Um, she will be at the first night of Brundabar. Um, it's a very exciting project. Uh, so I'm now working on the book, Brundabar, with Tony Kushner, and I'm working on the theater piece, Brundabar. And as far as I know, that's what I'm going to be doing for another year. Now I ask you to ask me. Yeah. Well, my parents uh, came here just before World War I, and they married, and uh, their job instantly was to raise money to bring the rest over. Uh, that's why they were sent to America, to bring the families over. My mother was 16, and she was in deep shock because her father had died very suddenly before she left. They put her on a boat, and there she is in a foreign country, not speaking English, um, eventually meeting with my father, both working, she as a seamstress, him as a tailor, saving every penny, uh, pr producing first my sister, then my brother, and then many years later, me. I was a little bit of embarrassment to them because I came very late. 
And in those days, any evidence of sexual activity in your 30s was not a good sign. Um, so my father uh, blamed Wall Street crash on me. Um, see, I was the harbinger of all bad luck in the family. I wasn't even a genuine love child, which is peculiar. Um, they saved enough money to bring my mother's family, uh, her mother, three sisters, a brother, and then it was ended, and her eldest brother was trapped. And that was the end of him. We never, ever got to my father's side of the family. So I'm the last Sendak at this point in history. And um, how they dealt with it, well, it's like... Uh, all of childhood was in ruin, basically, because um, I was like 10 or 11 years old when it all began, and it seemed as though it were a blight on my life. Children are very selfish, and every pleasure that I should have had or could have had, uh, I was told I should not enjoy this because my cousins were dying, and they were my age, and they were having no fun. So I was constantly taught, almost by an umbilicus, to Europe where Jewish children were dying, and I was playing, and it seemed as though I had no right to do that. That was very difficult. Uh, my parents expressed all of this with extreme... Um, they were peasant people, and there was crying and screaming and rending of garments and rending of hair, and that's literally what I remember, moving right into World War II, so the memory of childhood is not a joy, except for the great good fortune of having two of the best siblings in the whole world. An older sister and an older brother whom I adored, who got me reading, who got me drawing, who got me playing, and who took care of me, basically. They became surrogate parents. And we all sort of moved away from our parents because the pain was too much for healthy, normal children to bear. Of course, now I bear that with them and for them because I've devoted so much of my life to the Holocaust in one way or another. Um, the other thing was, oh, yes, you saw me excite myself earlier in the day when I was signing a book, and it, it was in Hopewell, New Jersey, and every nerve ending of my body flashed because of the Lindbergh case. Probably everybody in this room is too young to remember Charles A. Lindbergh. Right. No. Um, 1932, March, uh, the baby was exactly my age, and he was the most glamorous pe person in America. Um, what? Prince William? Uh, the handsome, of course, we all grew to hate him later, but that's different. Uh, he had just crossed the Atlantic, and he had married beautiful daughter of the Mexican ambassador. She wrote poetry. She learned how to fly planes when she was eight months pregnant. She wrote, flew upside down in his plane, writing poetry. It was, you know, <laughs> you know, it was super and duper. Then they had this beautiful baby, blonde-haired, blue-eyed. You have to remember this was during the Depression. So we read anything that took our minds off the fact that we had no food in the house. So the Lindbergh case was the major event of my life. Now, I was a sickly child, as were all 30s children. There were no drugs. So you got you know, pneumonia and scarlet fever and whooping cough and boom, 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 boom. Spent most of your life in bed and, and not being allowed to play with your siblings. 
At that point was when the baby was taken. Now, this is interesting, too, because people say, well, children don't know certain things, and they know too many things now because they see TV or horrible movies. Uh, but there were no, I didn't get to the movies back then, and all we had was a radio. I did listen to the radio and newspapers, which I could not read at that particular time. I was only two when this happened. Uh, but I do remember everything vividly. I remember the headline. I remember Mrs. Lindbergh reading over the radio the baby's formula to the kidnapper that the baby had a slight cold and would he rub his chest with camphor. I can almost hear it now. And we followed the case. The whole world stopped. And Lindbergh saw a blonde-haired child in Algeria, and he flew to Algeria, and he went to the Alps, and he went to Shanghai, and he was at the Yangtze River, and it seemed he was everywhere that a glint of blonde hair shone. And, of course, in a very short time, uh, the body of the baby was found a few miles from the house in Hopewell, which had been built for them and their new marriage. Now, um, I can't quite explain to you, many years in therapy helped me partly with this, but I clearly, I totally associated to the fact that a Gentile, beautiful, rich child of the most famous couple living in America in a gorgeous house in a place called Hope Well, New Jersey, with German shepherds and nannies and butlers, could be taken away and murdered. What about me? Where did that leave a poor Jewish kid in Brooklyn? I got very, very worried, and I drove my parents crazy. And I remember this went on for a long time, with my father having to sleep in our room on the floor, I see him in his pajama bottoms and his underwear top with a baseball bat. <laughs> the screen just covering the window, which also why I have been an insomniac all my life, and protecting us. And I remember when my Uncle Joe, whom I loathed even as a child, was discussing this phenomena and told my father, he said, Philip, who in the world would want your children? Um, he became, since it became fairly well known that the wild things were based on my relatives, um, Uncle Joe is the ugliest of all the relatives. And children hold vendettas dear to their hearts. They're not forgotten. And even now I'm getting pleasure from telling you this. <laughs> It was a thought that never could have struck any of us. Of course we were worth stealing, just as Charlie Lindbergh had been. Anyway, the story stayed with me, and his death and my near mortality, because my parents were not discreet people, so my being that ill and at one occasion nearly dying, uh, the business of my dying was a very open discussion in the house, with my grandmother sewing white clothes that when I was a little better, I would be wearing entirely white clothes with white socks so that when I sat on the stoop in front of the house, the angel of death would mistake me for an angel and keep going. Maybe it worked. Um, that was so much a part of my life, simply the extraordinary vulnerability of childhood. I think it's true of all of us in one way or another. How we survive childhood is miraculous. 
And thus that became the subject of all my work, of how does a child get past any moment in the Wildface case, how does he get past defying his mother, hating her, and in a sense wishing her dead for being such a bore when he's having such a good time? That's what caused great outcry when the book was published. No American child had ever daunted his mother, apparently. No one was admitting it, anyway. Um, and then, forgiven, not punished, no lessons to be learned, nothing. He has his way. He flaunts her. She locks him in a room. Big deal. He has his fantasy. He gets out. He acts out on all my relatives. Comes home bored and tired, and sure enough, there's dinner. Of course she would have dinner. It's all forgotten. There'll be lovey-dovey for another three days, and the following Tuesday it'll happen all over again. And then when he's 30, he'll go into therapy, and he might move out. You know. <laughs> Um, that book brought me notoriety, unfortunately. I'm answering your question way too long, aren't I? Uh, okay, you have to see the germs of what has been in all my work. The Holocaust, the childhood of the Holocaust, the Lindbergh case, the fact that I could die and my knowledge that I could die at a very early age. It's something most children don't know for a very long time. Um, one last little bit of it. I was considered a very morbid child. And I remember seeing a picture of the corpse of the baby with an arrow pointing to the remains. And my parents were very angry that I kept walking around telling this story like the ancient mariner. Uh, you know, like unhand me graybeard loon if they could. Uh, I couldn't get it out of my head. And it stayed, and I went into therapy when I was growing up, and I discussed this image, and he spoke of, well, it's part of the blah, 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 and uh, you imagined it. And then I grew up, and I moved to Connecticut, and in my little town in southern Connecticut, just the weirdest thing, was a man who wrote a book exonerating um, Bruno Hauptmann, the man who was executed for the murder of the baby. In my town in my library. And here I'm like 50, so am I still hallucinating? But he was there, and I was the only one in the audience. Like, who's going to come to listen to? <laughs> and why did his stupid publisher and manager send him to my town? I'll never know. So he stood on stage telling, talking to me, and I kept correcting him because I had memorized the whole case. I knew every detail of the case. And so we got to laugh, and since nobody was there, he came down, and we went out and had dinner together. And we got to be friends, we talked, and I finally could share this deeply terrible, psychotic image, which I didn't dare talk about anymore, of having seen the picture of the dead baby. And he tossed his napkin to me, and he said, draw it. I could draw it. I'd seen it all my life, so I drew it. Just sketched it with the arrow gave it to him back, and he said, oh, you saw it. You saw it. And he took out of his briefcase the files that he brought because he'd hoped for an audience like you and everybody wanted no things. Nobody was there. He showed me a photograph of the first edition of the Daily News that showed the body of the baby. Colonel Lindbergh said he would sue them if it was on the second edition. So the whole first edition was pulped. It happened to Yoko Ono and her husband. Somebody shot him 
as a corpse lying, naked corpse on a slab, and an early edition that was pulped quickly or she threatened to sue. So it happened, and I was with my mother, and I passed the newsstand. I saw it because they only bought the Yiddish papers. We didn't have newspapers. I saw the picture like a photograph in my brain. I took the whole thing in. He gave me the picture as a present. Strange present. But it justified so many things in my life that I had thought of this as an extremely neurotic episode, that I had been traumatized by the baby's death. But here, in fact, I'd heard everything on the radio and I saw the pictures in the newspaper. So what do we do about kids watching television? I don't have an answer to that one. Um, but at this point, not a very cheerful point, but um, I'd like some more questions. Uh, before, before we ask questions, um, there are some people watching this on Samuel Cast and they can't hear the questions. So my um, role, which I find very difficult, is to repeat the questions. So please uh, make them simple. Uh, the question is that despite the gravity of the experiences that brought, uh, brought you to um, uh, write the stories that you write, uh, how is it that so many of your stories end on a note of hope? Because they must, for my sake. See, I have a, this also came up this morning, I have, a, I have a problem with being called a children's book writer. I don't know what that is. I don't know how to write a children's book. Apparently I do, quite successfully. But I don't know how. Now, there are courses in colleges all across the country which will tell you how to write and illustrate a book for children. Great. Now, I do it because I, was, I am just the same age as Philip Roth. His Portnoy came out when the Wild Things came out. He got in just as much trouble as I did. And we got to be friends. Only his book is for grown-ups and mine is for kids. Yes, I have animals that talk and little boys who swim all nude in bottles of milk. I guess you don't put that on the same shelf with a Philip Roth or a Norman Mailer. But other than that, I think the questions I'm asking in my work are as serious as I know how to be. The hopefulness comes from, that's why I'm an artist. I'm constantly looking for salvation in one form or another. I, and somebody said, but don't you fool yourself. Don't you realize you are doing books for children if they're always hopeful? Not true. Many of the endings of my books are ambiguous. The hope is barely hopeful. Um, Wild Things definitely had to be hopeful because he was doing a perfectly reasonable and normal thing. If there had been anything else, he would have, I would have taken him away from his parents instantly. The fact that they continue to love him, the fact that his father isn't around, that was much as my house was about. That the supper was there was a happy note. That had to be there. I could, I could help you. I'll share it with you. <laughs> when The Wild Things was turned into an opera, what was that all about? Uh, or how was it as a... Uh, I answer both questions. The easy one. Um, it was the year of the child, which I think was like 1977 or 78. And uh, the opera in Brussels 
the Théâtre de la Monaille, I'm so happy I remember that, commissioned the opera. Uh, the book was very popular in Europe, and I was asked to work with a composer, and they nominated a composer, an English composer named Oliver Nussen. Um, we met, and we befriended each other, and we are friends to this day. And we worked together. He's a brilliant, brilliant composer. Now does not compose, alas, but has become a very, very honored conductor. Um, we put the opera together with both of us having not a clue what the opera was. And we were picking up what were our favorite things in opera. And I said, my favorite thing, one of my favorite things is Mussorgsky's Boris Goodenough. And there's a scene in Boris Goodenough where the Tsarevich, the little boy, is asking his father about the world. And it's the only moment in the opera, actually, where Boris isn't broken by the guilt of having killed the real Tsarevich to get the throne. And his talking to his son is heartrending because we know what Boris's fate is, and the boy is so innocent. And the music is charming. It's nursery music in the middle of this severely somber opera. And all of a sudden, he liked that too. And we both knew that we loved uh, L'Enfant et les Sortilèges by Ravel, The Child and the Magic, and that we would just rip that off completely. We'd just take everything we could from Ravel. That's the way we began. Two magpies stealing in every direction. The opera went on in Brussels. It was an unmitigated disaster because the staging of it, everything was just from pure inexperience. It just looked and sounded bad. Then we had the letters from children uh, in Belgium that were sent on to me, things like, I hate your opera, I hope you never do it again. Um, one boy said, I came to see an opera, I did not come to see a chandelier. I don't know what he meant. Until I realized he was sitting up there and all he could see was a chandelier, <laughs> quite literally. Uh, we were both very, very depressed because we knew it was a good opera. Happily, it was picked up by an English company. It was redone at Glyndebourne in Sussex. We had a whole year and a half to redo the whole thing, organize it better, dramatize it better, uh, make whole changes in set design. I've never done set design. Ali had never written an opera. Here we were. Uh, and it was a success and remained a success in Europe, came to this country, was a success in this country, has been out of print, so to speak, for quite a long time. It's very expensive to put up. And opera companies are not spending money at this point. They just don't have it. It's a very costly production. It lasts only an hour. It's great fun to do. We then did another opera based on one of my other books called Higgledy Piggledy Pop or There Must Be More to Life, which is much better because Ali just jumped. I mean, he's an extraordinary composer. They will both are just being recorded now and will be released on Deutsche Grammophon this coming Christmas with him conducting. So this will be the pristine version, finally, of both operas because he's tinkered with it all these years. So I personally cannot wait to hear them again. Yeah. What was my favorite book that I ever read? When I was like you. Okay. Um, Mickey Mouse and Pygmy Land was one of them. Um, some of the books that were mentioned earlier... I think mostly my father belonged to a club 
uh, I think it was the New York Post, where he got Mark Twain, the whole set of Mark Twain. And my brother and I sat and read the entire set. So probably Huck Finn uh, was my favorite then, and Tom Sawyer next, and Mysterious Stranger after that. And I just read and read and read. But I think probably Twain, I would say Twain was my favorite writer when I was your age. I'm not going to touch that one. <laughs> um, I'm not going to talk about the ones I despise. I'm going to talk about mostly, and I'm speaking very generally of a disappointment, which probably comes from getting to be a grumpy old man, of um, what I think is a letting down of certain standards of writing in the profession. That kind of scares me. Just sort of hallmark car type children's books. Not serious stuff. Um, not really funny either. Just kind of cheap, not unlike most of bad television, not unlike most of bad anything in this country right now. Uh, the good stuff, yes, there's always good stuff, and there are some few young people now, I can't give you their names either because it'll be an excluding other names, who are fine, but there are far too few. I can think of only three working now whose work is really quite interesting. They're very young. They have much to go on. They don't have the advantages I had. I had a very long apprenticeship. Uh, the woman, Ursula Nordstrom, who was the editor of Harper and Brothers then, um, picked me up off the street, basically. Again, like Frank calling me for the opera, she just saw a few things. I worked at F.E.O. Schwarz in the toy shop, and I drew pictures all over the windows to attract people, like throwing out your bait. And Ursula was the biggest fish I ever could have caught. And she came up and wanted to know who drew those pictures in the window. And we met. And on the very same day, she gave me my first book. We are celebrating that moment next year, which is exactly 50 years ago that I began illustrating books. Um, and she nurtured me. I didn't have a clue what to do. She gave me one book. The hundreds of books you heard that I did were mostly ghastly books because I had to earn a living. I would hope 50 of them are out of print now that you'll never have to see. Some few of them are good, like the Ruth Krauss books are very good because Ruth was a great teacher. She took me to Connecticut. Her husband was Cracker Johnson, the great cartoonist of Barnaby and Harold and the Purple Crayon. And he and Ruth, they became the best parents of the whole world. He gave me reading lists, and I would come back the following weekend having read uh, Crime and Punishment, having read Tests of the D'Urbeville, having read George Eliot. That's how I read. I never read in school. I didn't even know I loved reading great books until he taught me to. So I was getting my education. I, kids can't get that now. I mean, you're kind of put into the cannon and shut out. And you're expected to really be successful as soon as possible. And it just, that's not the way to bloom. It's not the way to grow. I had 10 years of some good books, some very bad books, constantly nourished by Ursula, constantly endorsed by her. She would visit me. She would write me letters. She would talk to me. Um, I miss her now. 
But in point of fact, that was seems to be a, something in the golden age. So, what was the question? I'm sorry. Well, I think mostly I'm thinking mostly of old children's book. I'm sorry. Beatrix Potter is just about the best example of a woman who had almost no contact with children and had one of the most incredibly detestable childhoods of any human being who wrote books for salvation. But she's a mini Jane Austen. She's a colossal writer. She uses language which will now be considered too advanced for the age of four to six group. You don't know where to put her, except being Beatrix Potter, she's acceptable. She's, a, she's an idol. She's a god. Her books are very complicated, and they're full of her miseries and her joys. And she's an incredible prose writer. She also was an incredible illustrator. But that standard, that 19th century standard that was mostly set in England and that we adapted and took from, but never quite reached that standard in America, as far as I'm concerned. Any number of British, the British invented the picture book, in my opinion. Uh, but those are still my favorites. Those are still the best. Uh, many of my colleagues, I mean, I'm 72, those people who grew up with me, um, they were wonderful kids because they were all nurtured the way I was. It was like a school. And children's books was such a hidden little place. Um, it was, as I said this morning, it was Low Man on the Totem Pole in the publishing house. Women ran the children's book department. Women, strong women. They probably weren't allowed to work anywhere else in the house except in kitty book land. Men wouldn't be caught dead in kitty book land. It was so unmanly. And I remember going to parties when I was young, and somebody would say to me, that's probably why I don't go to parties anymore, hey, what do you do? And I, I write, hey, and I always with a sense of embarrassment myself. What do you write? I write books for kids. Hey, i got to introduce you to my wife, honey. And he gets out fast. <laughs> I don't know what he's scared of, but I don't want to know. It was just the same in the publishing world. The women ran the business. Powerful, strong, ingenious, imaginative, great people. I remember any number of them. Of course, I am prejudiced. I think Ursula was the greatest and the best. She also was the most demented, which helped me. Um, then we made the ultimate mistake. Somewhere in the 70s, we began to sell very well. We got to sell better than the fiction department, than the Bible department. Then the men came. Money is manly. <laughs> so the women got dumped. I'm exaggerating to a degree, but not really. Um, Ursula was dumped, and other people took over, and they reduced the business largely. I am generalizing. There's Margaret McElderry at Random House in her 80s, still doing her books. She's the last remnant of that generation. Um, but that ended with that whole time period of mentorship, being hidden away in the publishing house, going unnoticed, doing exactly what we want, the craziest things, experimenting with all kinds of books and getting away with it. Who looked? 
well, librarians looked, it seemed. They were on my back pretty soon. But in fact, that was a great time. And I can't think of contemporary work that is anywhere on that level. I just can't. Yeah. Did you hear that? Could you, could you, yeah, could you repeat it a little louder, please? Yeah. It's, isn't it a contradiction in a way? Because they're also getting these worst games and these horrible books and blowing up people and all these things that people are debating. Um, there is a movement in this country, which has been going on for some time now, of parent groups who decide what books are appropriate for their children. This used to be something that librarians did, and they did it pretty damn well. They were awfully wrong many of the time, but it was a different kind of animus or prejudice. Now there is a very tough, uh, rigorous, what is appropriate for my child. There are parents who have complained about my book, and uh, if the principal or librarian didn't remove the book from the shelf, they would get rid of the principal or the librarian. That's new. That kind of demonic attitude. Uh, nobody has a possibility of choice here. That's a bad book. That is now. And I can't answer the question as to why. There's some questions upstairs, too, um, on the ba from the balcony. You may... Oh, I'm sorry. You, boy. <laughs> <laughs> the favorite book that I wrote, I think my... Can, 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 can I have two favorites? Okay. <laughs> He's cool about that. Uh, my two favorites are Higgly Piggly Pop and Outside Over There. Yeah. I can't hear you. Sorry. What made me become an author? There's nothing else I could do. But when I was born, my brother was already writing stories. My sister was uh, making bindings for his stories. I was immediately apprenticed to him without any choice as his illustrator. Uh, my father told wild stories, and my mother looked on with a very hopeless expression on her face. Um, it, there was no choice. I had to be a writer. I had to be a writer or an illustrator. I have to tell you one story. Um, my brother wrote stories that was as crazy as the ones my father told. That's natural. And I would illustrate his stories, and then when company came, the same relatives on Sunday, he would read aloud, and I would draw on shirt cardboard, and I would hold up the appropriate picture for the appropriate moment. And he wrote his masterpiece, I think his swan song, uh, when he had to go out and get a job, was We Are Inseparable. 
And it was about a brother and sister who are so fond of each other, are so attached, are so close, that they decide they should get married. Um, I think sort of Freud took a detour over Brooklyn. Somewhere along in the writing of the story, some little thing flicked on in his brain, and he suddenly decided it would be much more interesting if the boyfriend had a really serious accident. Good idea. Uh, Now, my sister was and is an extremely beautiful woman, and me and my brother were very proud, very proud that she was in our family. It was like having Miss America in your family. And I remember the feeling when she came up the street, that that is my sister. She is ours. Um, and so it seemed perfectly natural that my brother would want to marry my sister. We keep it all in the family. <laughs> anyway, in this story, suddenly he is in a deadly accident, and he's in the hospital. He's not expected to live. He's wound around. Every joint, organ, part of him is broken. These are the pictures I love drawing, the ones where they're... <laughs> Ones where they're embracing and kissing, I, had, I could not do that. But the broken pictures I could do. So I had him in the picture all wound up and bloodied and bandaged, lying in the hospital, and the nurses and the doctors are barring the door from my sister because she's just out of her mind. And she breaks past them into the room, leaps onto him, probably breaks whatever joints are not broken. <laughs> they both scream, we are inseparable and hurl themselves from the 15th floor of the Brooklyn Jewish Hospital in Brooklyn. (laughs) And, of course, my favorite picture was the falling of the bodies (laughs) and a special picture for the splat, a double splat. (laughs) Um, You just have to blame my father for these things. So there was no choice. I didn't want there to be a choice. I wanted to be in books. Actually, I wanted to be in music, because I fell in love with music at just about the same time. Opera, mostly classical music. Again, it's what my brother and sister listened to. I did what they did. Whatever they'd done, I would have done. I emulated everything because I adored them. And so it was classical music, and right early on, I, if I'd had a choice in life, I would have been any singer, small chorus person in the corner, preferably pianist, playing Mozart or singing Mozart. It seems to me they have the best of everything. They're as close as possible to the world of the actual composer. And my fantasy on my insomnia from childhood on is such a banal one, but I'll share it with you. I'm at Carnegie Hall, and they come out with terrible news that the pianist had a stroke. Who is there out there? It's the old doctor story. And I raise my hand with certainty. And I go up and I play Beethoven's Appassionata and two Mozart sonatas from memory. (laughs) And I get this enormous acclaim. And I am in sheer heaven. Because by that time, I was so excited I couldn't fall asleep anyway. Long answer to your question. Yes. Uh, do you? How do you decide uh, how, when, and how to illustrate a book? Uh, 
Do you read it first? What steps do you take uh, before you decide to do, before you agree to do it? Right. Well, it's different from the book I will illustrate that somebody else has written and very different from the book that I've written that I'm about to illustrate. Now, of course, I'm very careful about the books I illustrate that other people have written because some of them are suitable and some of them are not. Just like some of my favorite operas in the whole world are operas I cannot design. Um, Otello by Verdi. It's one of the great passions of my life, but I can't do it. I can't do proper rooms and steps and windows. I can't. It all has to be askew so I can get away with the bad proportions of my drawings. Um, so the book has to suit my particular gift. My gift is particular. I have, it has its own geography. If I step out of that and I learn this the hard way, then it's, it's badly done. So it has to be within the realm of my ability and my imagination. And then if it's working, I know right away, because as I read a text that someone else has written, I see pictures. It's like an automatic machine up there. It's like a Polaroid in my brain. If I don't see the pictures, then there's no point in my proceeding. Now, when I'm writing my own story, I have to take all the film out of the Polaroid because I'm easily seduced by the pictures I imagine. And I don't want to write to pictures. I want to write to write. It seems to have worked where I can simply concentrate on language and my love of language and not see the picture. Now, this has happened sometimes to my detriment, where I will finish a story and find that there are things I can't draw. Like uh, the original title of Where the Wild Things Are was Where the Wild Horses Are. And both Ursula and I adore the title, but then when she saw my drawing, she said, think of another title. <laughs> uh, and I did. Um, that happens, but I ha I'm happy when that happens. It means I haven't written to what I can do. And I have to push myself. I've just written a new text, the first one in almost 10 years. I have no idea what it looks like. I'm just so grateful I got it. I'm so grateful that the old clinkety-clank machine still works. Because how do we know it's going to go anymore? I don't really worry about it all day long because there's nothing I can do about it. But when it came to work this summer and I heard the grindings, and I knew it wasn't heartburn. Um, he was a very happy man. Now, that book will wait. Once it's written, I have no concerns. The writing is the entire difficult purpose of it all. The pictures are something I know I can do. It's nothing to be concerned about. It will wait. Yeah. What are my working habits? Well, it's the working habits. I'm sure this is true of most artists. It's ritualistic. It must be the same every day. That's why having spent these days in New York with the opera and coming to Princeton, it'll take more than a week to get back into my zombie-like structure where I do everything. That's the only way I can do it. And I have to eat my breakfast at the same time. And I have to do this. And then I have to walk my dog for an hour and a half. And then I, I don't work in the morning. I begin precisely in the afternoon. I take a break. I walk him again. 
and he's just a zombie like as I am. <laughs> then I take my nap. And if he doesn't get his nap, he looks at me like, are you out of your mind? It's past 5.30. And then I get up, and then I have my dinner, and then I work. The happiest time is in the evening, where the phone has stopped ringing. I can play my music loud, and I can stay up as long as I like. But it must, if I don't start work in the afternoon, I won't work. If something else comes, like a phone call that takes too long or a problem, I'm exasperated because it's eating into my vital work time. I think we should uh, take one more question. There's a little in the back. I'm, trying to... I'm sorry. the actual Halpman trial on the radio, and did I hear it? I don't honestly remember us hearing it. And it's very likely my parents did not listen. I didn't even know the Halpman trial was broadcast over the radio, the actual trial. Have you got tapes? <laughs> No, I would have been I would have been not in the position to be able to turn the radio on and make a demand that we hear anything like that. Probably too, my parents only listened to the Yiddish stations. So and I taught fluid Yiddish when I was a child until I went to school. So I probably wouldn't have known what they were talking about anyway, but I'm sorry I missed it. I've read every book, pretty much every book on the case that has been published since then, mostly exonerating Hauptmann and the anti-German feeling in America because the war had been just seething and Mrs. Mrs. Lindbergh was pregnant and he was afraid she would lose her child. The sad thing is that seemingly the, the evidence was really not very terrific um, on Hauptmann. And a lot of it had to do with who Colonel Lindbergh was and how important. And I always had a chilling feeling that now, if any such thing had happened, like that awful case in Colorado, the first thing you would think about is perhaps the parents. Those were never thoughts that would have entered anybody's mind back in the 30s, because he was Colonel Lindbergh. There's an awesome mystery over the whole thing still. But then we had the quintuplets three years later, and I was on another thing, but that's a whole other story. <laughs> I suggest to take one more question to end this more on a, on a note of salvation and hope. <laughs> so one more, and you decide. Well, that's probably the toughest question. Um, it would be Maybe a sense of what I've already said, how extremely vulnerable are children, how much they already know, they know. Our reasoning is so faulty in terms of what we think they don't or do know, what, what is appropriate for them and what to protect them from, they know. I know that from my experience, I know that from very, lots of observations of children, how it works with them, what they protect their parents from, what they don't tell their parents because they know how easily their parents signal anxiety. They don't want to hear it. 
children learn very quickly what their parents are afraid of. So those matters are discussed with other children. Some of the letters I've gotten over the many, many years are questions that should have been put to parents, not to me. I was a strange guy whom they didn't know who wrote these books. I got very personal questions about, um, your book says that it's all right to be mad at my sister and sometimes I want to kill my sister. I am very scared that I will. Well, I don't think her parents know she's suffering. But she's perfectly able to verbalize this anxiety. And for me to talk to her for a period of months about, yeah, we all feel that way, but don't do it. Just can't do it. She knew she couldn't do it. It frightened her that she wanted to do it. Now, it's that that I'll try to reach for, that all the things that happened to us early on are important, honorable, if strange. And if there's only somebody there to tell us, it's okay. That is nothing kooky about us. We're not crazy people, but we feel like crazy people. And I think we persist in feeling like crazy people all through our lives. I think there are questions, even as adults, we do not ever venture to mention in polite society. That's a great shame. Now that I'm in my 70s, I can say, what the hell I like? <laughs> but it's taken me, honestly, all my life to become that person. I don't know if that answers your question. It's to be the guy they can trust who's going to tell them as much as he knows and not pretend that they're stupid. Thank you. Thank you, Tim. Thank you very much, uh, Maurice Senek. Uh, uh, he can he, he can write, he can he can write, he can draw, he can paint, he can design, and and boy, he can talk too. <laughs> Thank you very much. Unfortunately, however, this is the worst moment of my day. I'll have to say he can't sign. Uh, between um, the accident that he's recently had and the fact that we have a very tight schedule, the fact that there are many, many people here who would like autographs, unfortunately, we won't be able to accommodate you. And I apologize, and I know that Murray Sendak himself apologizes. Thank you very much for coming, and we'll see you next year.